Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news a hundred years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is July 26, 2017, and this week we're joined by Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, the storyteller and the historian Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, Dr. Libby O'Connell, U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner, historian, and author, David Craig, Executive Director of the Maryland World War I Centennial Commission, and Laura Vogt, Curator of Education at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission, and your host. We've moved back in time 100 years. It's the week of July 23, 1917. This week, 100 years ago, on Tuesday, July 24, 1917, a massive $640 million aviation bill passes in both houses of Congress. It's sent to the president's desk for signature. This is one of the largest appropriations for a single idea that the U.S. has ever made, and it passes Congress with little to no objection. That's in no small part because there are so many advocates that believe this incredible new technology of flying machines can be pivotal in the war. As written in the official bulletin, the Government War Gazette, published by George Creel, President Wilson's propaganda chief, Mr. Orville Wright declares that, When my brother and I built and flew the first man-carrying machines 14 years ago, we thought that we were introducing into the world an invention that would make further wars practically impossible. Nevertheless, the world now finds itself in the greatest war in history. I say that neither side has been able to win on account of the part that the airplane has played. Both sides know exactly what the other is doing. The two sides are apparently nearly equal in aerial equipment, and unless present conditions can be changed, the war will continue for years. However, if the Allies' armies are equipped with such a number of airplanes as to keep the enemy planes entirely back of the line, so that they are unable to direct gunfire or observe the movement of the Allied troops, in other words, if the enemy's eyes can be put out, it will be possible to end the war. And this is not taking into account what might be done by bombing German sources of munitions and supplies. But to end the war quickly and cheaply, the supremacy in the air must be so complete as to entirely blind the enemy. I believe that by no other method can the war be ended with so little loss of life and property. And 100 years ago this week, the United States makes a $640 million bet that this is true. This leads us directly into our War in the Sky segment, where we want to introduce you to James Allen Higgs Jr., a native of Raleigh and a two-time graduate of the North Carolina College for Agriculture and Mechanic Arts, today the North Carolina University's College of Engineering. James Higgs signed up for duty at the mature age of 29, intent on going to war. 
He was a slight fellow of about five feet, five and a half inches, weighing only 120 pounds. His greatest ambition, he said just before his graduation, was to grow. Higgs felt that if he signed up as an infantryman, he likely would not survive more than a few days in the trenches. In an interview in 1968, he said, I was a little guy. I couldn't fancy myself swapping bayonet thrusts with those big Germans, so when the call came out for the balloon observers, I volunteered. They took us to Washington and put us in a machine and spun us around and around until we were thoroughly dizzy, then measured the time it took to regain our equilibrium, and I was one of the winners. Being a balloon spy, as he was often called, was a position unique to the Civil War and World War I. Every day, from sunrise to sunset, it was Higgs' assignment to crawl into a two-man basket tethered by a cable to the front of a truck. Armed with binoculars, topographical maps, and a telephone, he would fly high, up to 5,000 feet, over the battlefield and report troop activities to his commanders on the ground. Usually, he was with a French observer who was relaying similar information to his superiors. As if flying unprotected over the battlefield wasn't dangerous enough, The sausage-shaped gas bags were filled with highly flammable hydrogen, making them susceptible to fires started by the hot shots coming from the guns below. They were sitting ducks and favorite targets for biplanes that attacked from behind the clouds as well. Four times over the course of four months, Higgs was shot down, jumping out of the basket and praying that the parachute stuffed on the outside of the balloon basket and harness on his back would deploy. It was anything but a peaceful trip to the ground. Higgs noted, We were wearing parachute harnesses with a rope attached to the chute that was stuffed into a bag hanging on the outside of the basket. Our weight would pull the chute out of the bag. Now, they were supposed to open when we dropped 300 feet, but it takes nearly five seconds to fall 300 feet from a standing start, and that's an awful long time to wonder whether you're going to live or die. The parachutes opened with considerable jolts but it was a very pleasant feeling. Higgs got rewarded for jumping out of a burning and falling balloon. Each time, he was rewarded with 48 hours of leave in Paris to settle his nerves and get ready to go back up, which he did all the way up to November 11, 1918, when the bells rang in Paris and signaled armistice between the warring nations. The end was an amazing thing, Higgs said. I'd been hearing guns roaring around and under me and sometimes enemy shells and bombs bursting in our camp for almost a year. Then, sharp at the stroke of 11, on November 11, they all just stopped. There were no birds or animals in the war zone to make the usual noises and no machines moved. I found myself listening just for any sound, but there were none. This story comes from the alumni news section of the North Carolina State's College of Engineering newspaper. The link to the full article is in the podcast notes below. Now, we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. We ran a quick featurette in our social media buzz section with Karen Akey about this subject. Today, Mike is here with a more in-depth look at one of the great horrors of this war, gas. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Teo, and here's our headlines. Gas, gas, quick, boys. Germans fire a million gas shells, mustard the poison gas of choice, 
as near to hell on this earth, and this is special to the Great War Project. From mid-July a century ago, the German use of powerful mustard gas is becoming a major component of the German attacks. German mustard gas attacks, writes historian Martin Gilbert, have been continuous on the Western Front. The British medical services worked at full strength to try to cope, but the mortality rate was high. One British officer in charge of a mobile laboratory noted one typical case. Exposed to mustard gas on the morning of 28th July 1917, respiratory symptoms gradually developed and death occurred about 100 hours after exposure to gas. Reports Gilbert in the six weeks following July 12th, just over 19,000 British soldiers were incapacitated by mustard gas, many of them being blinded and 649 dying within a week or 10 days after the attack. These are the first use of mustard gas seen by the British. More than 50,000 shells were fired and more than 2,000 Allied soldiers affected by the gas. In the next three weeks, the Germans fired a million gas shells, killing 500 more soldiers and incapacitating several thousand, but they were unable to break through the British lines. The British respond in kind, firing 100,000 gas shells containing chloropictrin, resulting in numerous German casualties. The experience of gas attacks like these lead to some of the most extraordinary writing of the war penned by Wilfred Owen. There's this. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knocked kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod, all went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. These are words from Owen's masterful poem, To die for the fatherland is a sweet thing and becoming. Horrifying words, here's more. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, the old lie, to die for the fatherland is a sweet thing. As war historian John Keegan writes of another gas attack, as gas seized their throats and the German infantry pounded towards them across no man's land, the scene must have been as near to hell on this earth can show. And that's the story a hundred years past these moments uh, from the Great War Project. Thank you, Mike. Sure. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. For videos about World War I, we invite you to check out the Great War Channel on YouTube. They're into their fourth season of making great informative videos about World War I. This week's new episodes include a feature story, Tunnel Warfare During World War I, A Hundred Years Ago This Week story, July Days in Petrograd, Blood on the Newski Prospect, and a hardware piece, British Rifles in World War I. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search The Great War on YouTube. 
To wrap up our history section on World War I Centennial News, we welcome our intrepid duo, the storyteller and the historian Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, who are going to explore some of the challenges with building a really big army really, really fast. When the United States entered the Great War, its regular army numbered just 128,000 men, one of the smallest forces in the world. In order to rapidly expand the force, the War Department activated the National Guard, bringing up the Army's strength to just over 300,000 men. It still wasn't large enough, so the United States enacted selective service. But to process, train, and equip all these men would take enormous resources, so the War Department created the National Army. And Jonathan, the training of these men was often quite rushed. I remember interviewing 104-year-old Eugene Lee in Syracuse. He had enlisted in the Marine Corps right after America entered the war on April 6th. And by June 26th, he was one of the 14,000 American soldiers to arrive in France. That's just two months. How well could he have been trained in that time? Right, not very well, and that's a regular. Uh, So that's another thing to think about. For perspective, the, the British had four million troops. And Britain is a tiny country, um, and Britain had, was the smallest army in the Great War. The next was Austro-Hungarian Empire with 7.4 million. Mm-hmm. So really what we're looking at is an army of 300,000 soldiers just isn't going to cut it. So you have to create a massive army of millions of people. Mm-hmm. Where do you come up with the equipment and the time and the manpower to create such a thing? Um, And so what the army did is they created 16 national encampments all around the country. And more than just training camps, they were mini cities where everybody sort of came in, mingled with each other. You know, this is where you have your typical American movie scene of the farm boy interacting with the city slicker and everybody's getting sick because it's all new cultures and germs and... The, the soldiers themselves were equipped uh, through some really ingenious method from the War Department. You know, a lot of them were given uh, old stuff yeah. uh, dating back to the Spanish-American War. And in fact, the first African-American volunteers were actually issued blue uniforms left over from the Civil War. Uh, this is a country that... We were at, what, the 19th largest army in the world at that mm-hmm. point, behind Serbia, I Something believe. Like that, yeah. uh, and uh, I think it says a lot about how ambivalent this country was about entering the war, that really, by the time we did enter it, we still only had an army of 128,000 men. And our armaments that we had to use in the opening days of the war were all French. With the, and a, a few British, but mainly French. Our machine guns, our... Um, our gas mask, our airplanes, our tanks, our artillery. The first American shot of the war was from a French 75-millimeter artillery gun. Right. We didn't field our own artillery pieces until late in 18, and they were essentially knockoff of the French 75. It, do you get the sense, I mean, these camps, uh, my grandfather was um, in the first round of draftees, and he was in 1917, and he was sent out to Camp Upton in uh, Yaphank, Long Island, mm-hmm. which was one of these 16 original camps, and uh, the press loved it. It was close to New York, so all the newspapers sent their correspondents out and, and covered uh, the mishaps and, and hijinks of these, uh, not farm boys, but inner city immigrants mingling with the 
sons of uh, Wall Street tycoons. And they wrote a lot of copy about how they, you know, these men were living amongst one another and loving it. Loving it, of course. Everyone was happy and no one was hungry and everyone was well fed and and everyone was perfectly uniformed. Actually, the, the army was struggling. The War Department was really put to task for, with this enormous responsibility. How do you just find uniforms? How do you find the same size shoes? See what they did? Um, Secretary of War Baker was a rather smart man. He subcontracted out to Sears and Roebuck. Because who else knows how to move a massive quantity of items very quickly and understands logistics? Sears Roebuck. And so that type of thing was what characterized the outfitting of the National Army. So the, the, the Army was outfitted by mail order. Essentially. Uh, but even Sears Roebuck couldn't have handled it. I, I, a question for you. How long would you say it took for the Army to get up to speed, up to, up to really, you know, fighting Around November trim. 11th, 1918. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, too. They really, uh, and this was a lesson, I think, that was learned for the next war. Uh, America found its war footing a lot quicker, I think, the next time around, learning the lessons of the First World War. Exactly. And it was because it was the junior officers from the First World War who were now the senior commanders in World War II. And so they finally were able to uh, amend the situation. First and foremost, Colonel George Marshall, uh, who ran the whole show the next time. Thank you, gentlemen. That was the storyteller, Richard Rubin and the historian Jonathan Bratton talking about building the National Army in 1917. The Storyteller and the Historian is now a full hour-long monthly podcast. Look for it on iTunes and Libsyn, or follow the link in the podcast notes. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now, news about the centennial and the commemoration. In commission news, this past week, we participated in the Veterans of Foreign Wars 118th National Convention in New Orleans, which ran from July 22nd to July 26th. Our own David Hammond went down to the Big Easy to man a commission booth and meet the members of this great veterans organization. When we spoke with David, he told us that it's been a, quote, extremely positive and oftentimes emotional experience to connect with these vets and their families from around the country. U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner Edwin Fountain was asked to speak at the event and address the membership of this veterans organization, which has been such a great friend to the commission. The VFW maintains a specific World War I Centennial website at www.cc.org VFW. And you can learn more about the VFW's national event by following the link in the podcast notes. Next, we're going to give you our upcoming event pick of the week, selected from the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, where we're compiling and recording the World War I commemoration events from around the country. Not just the major ones from big venues and museums, but also local events showing how the centennial commemoration of the war that changed the world is playing out all over the country. For example, this week we picked an event in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The University of Alabama has an exhibit on view through September 29th called William C. Gorgas and the Great War. 
The exhibit features the story and impact of William Gorgas, a physician and the 22nd Surgeon General of the U.S. Army, serving in that role from 1914 through 1918, and throughout the war years. The exhibit is at the restored family home of William Gorgas on the University of Alabama campus. The Gorgas House Museum serves as an active community resource committed to learning through exhibition, education, and social engagement. See the link in the podcast notes to learn more. We also want to invite you and your organization to submit your own World War I events to the National Events Register at www.1cc.org events. Click on the big red button and get your commemorative event recorded for posterity. Joining us now is Dr. Libby O'Connell, a most interesting person. Dr. O'Connell was the chief historian at the History Channel. She's a U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner and recently released a history book about American food. The American Plate, a culinary history in a hundred bites, has been lauded by the New York Post as required reading and an Entertainment Weekly top three must-reads. Libby, welcome. Nice to have you. Thank you, too. So, Libby, I had no idea. Food? Yeah, food. Food seems to be a great way to engage the public who may not be even people who consider themselves interested in history, but they're interested in food. So it, it widens audience for history storytelling, I think. And I like it. I mean, I love to cook. I like food. And I like the conversation around the table as well. Okay, so let's get topical. When I think of World War I and food, I, I think of rationing and propaganda. Well, you're right. The story of food in World War I, I think, is really engaging. You've got the domestic front and you've got the war front. So there are two very different things going on um, at that time. But the government, the Wilson's administration, through the Creel Committee, that's the um, Committee for Public Information, as well as Herbert Hoover's U.S. Food Administration, combined to really go hard on the propaganda encouraging people to save food, to produce more food, and to conserve the food that they produce. So those are the sort of the three messages that are going out at any time. You'll see posters that say, you know, food is ammunition. Don't waste it. Okay? There'll be little column fillers that the Creel Commission um, helps develop because, you know, they really were so good at capturing that technique of marketing and messaging that we think is so modern. Well, they helped invent that. Creel had a background in journalism as well as law enforcement. There were other people on his committee who were experts in what was a really pretty infant industry compared to where advertising and marketing is today. And they were able to develop these hard-hitting, very clear and sort of catchy phrases to make the public aware wherever they are, whether they're reading Good Housekeeping and there's an article about being a kitchen soldier, I pledge not to waste, or talking to kids at school saying, do you want to be a, a farmer and help win the war? There's never a separation in their messaging between fighting the good fight and cooking or saving food or learning how to can beets. Kids felt that they were contributing to the war effort if they joined the Clean Plate Club. 
adults felt that they were active contributors. It's very interesting, I think, that they were so active in reaching out to women, to mothers, to household members, and saying, if you do this about food, if you save food, if you produce food, or if you conserve food, all of these things are as valuable as being on the war front. And you read memoirs of people saying, I really felt that I was contributing to our victory. I was helping to defeat the Kaiser because I served cornbread instead of wheat bread. Or I was working on a farm. I helped contribute to our war effort. There's no doubt. It's not like I felt maybe that I was helping. That's not how people are thinking. They're thinking, I'm doing the right thing. I'm a patriot. And it's as valuable as anything that I could have done if I were on the front. And the whole nation was at war. The whole nation was at war. And one of the things that you see in the United States that's parallel to what was going on in Germany and Britain is the idea of mass mobilization of the citizenry. So whether you are in uniform or whether you're at home, you have a chance to be part of winning the war. Libby, your book is filled with fun facts, like that the first graham crackers were designed to reduce sexual desire and that the term buck means a dollar and so on. What are some of the fun facts about the turn of the century American foods? Well, one of the things that's happening at the turn of the century, it, you have the beginning of national brands. So Nabisco, the National Biscuit Company, is created in the late 19th century. In the early 20th century, you start having Oreo cookies. You have Fig Newtons. These are originally local brands, but they become national because of the ability to advertise nationally and because of railroads distributing food throughout the country. And another difference, what we never remember, is packaging. Cracker Jack becomes a national food because it's packaged in a way that makes it possible to stay fresh from when it's shipped out of Chicago all the way to California or to New York. Jell-O is still a, a big hit, believe it or not. It's still one of the top 10 desserts in America. And these were these national brands that were developed in the early 20th century. Home and taking care of your kitchen and housework is going to become a science, and it should be taught as a science. And so the government sends out mostly women all over the country. They're volunteers in each state, and they're sent to local areas um, to teach how to can your food, how to dry your herbs, how to preserve your meat, all of these things. We're not supposed to be eating beef. That's supposed to go to our soldiers. But there are different ways of making potted chicken and things like that, and how to do it scientifically. Commissioner O'Connell, I've just had the pleasure of meeting a whole other side of you. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. That was U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner Dr. Libby O'Connell, author of the new book, The American Plate, A Culinary History in 100 Bites. Learn more about Dr. Libby O'Connell and about her new book by following the links in the podcast notes. 100 Cities, 100 Memorials. That's the name of a program we have here at the World War I Centennial Commission. You see, at the end of World War I, thousands of war memorials of every size were built in local communities across the country to honor and commemorate the service and the sacrifice of their local sons and daughters. Over the century, exposure to the elements, neglect, and even vandalism have taken their toll on these national treasures. So on July 15, 2016, a year ago, 
the World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library teamed up and launched this $200,000 National Matching Grant Challenge to inspire community action and to seed the rescue of these memorials. One year later, this month on July 15, 2017, the grant application period ended and all the submissions were received. Now, to evaluate the submissions, a review committee has been assembled. They're reading, reviewing, and rating the submissions based on a common evaluation rubric. The committee will then make recommendations to the program leadership on awarding projects the matching grants. Their recommendations will go to the program leadership in late August. We're proud to announce the members of the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Review Committee. They include U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner John Monahan from the American Legion, U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner Dr. Matthew Naylor from the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Captain Lynn Rolfe, who is with the VFW, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, Donna Crisp, who is with the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, Michael Knapp, who is with the ABMC, the American Battle Monuments Commission, Dr. Mark Levitch, with the National Gallery of Art and founder of the World War I Memorial Inventory Project, Eugene Hoff, Executive Director of Saving Hallowed Ground, and our own Joe Weishauer, the winning designer for the National World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. The members of this amazing group have volunteered their precious time to help us review and evaluate the submissions, and we thank them. But most of all, we need to give a huge shout-out to the teams that have taken on these restoration and conservation projects. These projects are a really big deal that require research, community interaction, permission from cities and counties, plans, schedules, budgets, fundraising, partnership. It's a huge dedication from each submitting team. The scope, the quality, the variety, and most of all, the deeply held commitment that these submitting teams have demonstrated is wonderful, and honestly, when you read them, often quite humbling. We want to thank and congratulate every submitting team on the fantastic projects that they've presented us with. We're going to be profiling the submitting teams and their projects on the show over the coming months, but before that, you can learn more about the program right now at www.cc.org slash 100 memorials, or follow the link in the podcast notes. This week, for our updates from the states, we're profiling Maryland. With us today is David Craig, the executive director of the Maryland World War I Centennial Commission, to talk to us about the centennial commemoration in the old line state. Welcome, David. Thank you very much for inviting me. David, you guys have been busy in Maryland with commemoration activities. Tell us about the commission and what you're up to. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Well, the governor had uh, created it by an executive order on November 11, 2015. We were officially established in September of 2016. That's when the 11 members, who are very good people, uh, were appointed. And we meet every other month and work on things. And one of the very first things we did was to create four working groups. And one is titled the History and Education Working Group. One is called Development and Fundraising. Another is Memorial and Sites. And another one is Social Media and Technology. And so each one, um, what the very first thing we had to do was present an action plan to the governor of what we felt should be going on in Maryland to recognize the 62,000 Marylanders who were in the war and the 1,700 who made the supreme sacrifice and 
had died. And so we actually presented that to him July 3rd of 2017. We did it at the State House, which is our state capitol building, and we did it right in front of a monument that's in, in the capitol building dedicated to the first 800 Marylanders who had enlisted. And while we were there, we unveiled a flag, which actually belonged to one of the units, and it was uh, the unit of Lieutenant Colonel Miller Tidings, and it was actually had been in the archives saved since 1917. So we unveiled that, and we presented the list of things that we hope the governor will look into and see which he would like to do, which he wants us to do. We will be involved with working with the military establishments in Maryland, Aberdeen Proving Ground, Fort Meade, um, mainly. We will work with our library systems, with our school systems, with our local governments, with our historical societies and our local museums. We can give you an example. Cecil County's Historical Society wanted to reveal all their archives that they had, so they put an uh, exhibition out and we went up there and helped them dedicate that. We had the Maryland Veterans Museum. We went down and they have brought out and created a special room just of World War I archives. When you spoke a little earlier about the monument restoration, the city had restored its monument that it had erected in July of 1919 and rededicated it. And right now they're in the process of uh, building a gold star monument to the parents who actually lost someone. And then they're going to do a unique thing with their old opera house, which they're restoring. They're going to have what they call the Tuesday night movie night. And what they're going to do is every month, starting in September, they will have a World War I movie. For example, Sergeant York or All Quiet on the Western Front. It will be free for people to come. They will just come and watch it. They'll have someone speak about the, the movie itself, how important it was and who the actors are, but also how it was connected with the war. So we'll be working with those types of things. Some of the things we've suggested to the governor is that we erect a monument just to World War I, as we have one that's just on World War II and one on Vietnam. We want to do a new one on just World War I. We also want to have uh, a new social website that would last beyond the time that we're done so that people will always be able to make the connection. We want to help all of our local governments. Uh, I know that you have the 100 uh, monuments you're going to work with. We have about 200 monuments in the state of Maryland that we want to help with. We also want to help sponsor a teacher conference where we could help the State Department of Education work on curriculum for what's going to happen. And we also would like the governor to have an event on Armistice Day, which we will call it, not Veterans Day, on November 11th, 2018, because the last person who actually got killed in the war was from Baltimore, and we want to do a dedication in, uh, for him at the cemetery down there. So we've suggested a great deal of things to him, and our members go around constantly throughout the 24 counties in the state of Maryland meeting with our local governments and local groups finding out what it is they're doing and how we can help them move it forward. There is a book that was put out in 1932 that listed all of the people in the war, so that, and we want to be able to put that on a website because we knew all these young kids don't read the books. They just want to go online and, and read the things and get connected. And we also want to make that connection with uh, all of our World War I monuments so that everybody will be able to know exactly where they are just by taking their phone out and clicking on it. And you know, Just for an example, I was at an event uh, last week, and I did not know that that town had a Doughboy monument that they had erected in 1920. So we want to make sure that everybody has this access to be able to find out what their ancestors had done. And it is interesting that the person you had that was talking about the, the uh, American plate, the book about food, 
because the first event that, that I had gone to that we had, when it was a lunch, we had a break at lunch, and the food was 1917 German recipes. Great projects, David. Thank you. Thank you. That was David Craig, the Executive Director of the Maryland World War I Centennial Commission. Learn more at www.cc.org slash Maryland, all lowercase, or by following the link in the podcast notes. There's a wonderful World War I arrival destination in Kansas City. It's the National World War I Museum and Memorial. Joining us today is Laura Vogt, their Curator of Education. Welcome, Laura. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Laura, I've had the pleasure of being at the World War I Museum and Memorial several times now, and it's truly a special place. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. There are some amazing memorials around our nation and right in the heart of the United States, right across from the railway station uh, that over 60% of our doughboys went through as they were preparing for the World War. Kansas Cityans came together and they built a memorial to that war. Uh, The idea started back in 1919 and they managed to raise $2.5 million in 10 days to build what is now the most global collection of great war artifacts in the world. Uh, The memorial itself opened in 1926, and we collected our first artifact in 1920, and we have remained uh, the only museum solely dedicated to the World War since that point in time. In 2006, uh, we expanded our space as a National Historic Landmark uh, when we had Ralph Applebaum and Associates uh, build our new main gallery. Uh, It was built underground. Less than 10% of our collection is on display at any point in time, uh, but we have right now uh, four rotating exhibitions that look at the events that are going on uh, that went on in 1917. We've got art on display and some amazing outdoor exhibitions. It's, it's a beautiful space. The tower itself is actually larger than the Statue of Liberty from the tip of her toes to the top of her torch. And anyone who visits here can ride up to the top of it. There's a lovely uh, flame of inspiration that can be seen every night. If you are out on our memorial courtyard taking in the beautiful views of Kansas City, or if you're here at the right time for our programming, you can actually do Pilates in the park because we continue to implement programs that show how our world today is completely changed in very everyday ways affected by World War I, including Pilates which was, in fact, uh, the name of a German gentleman who who created Pilates out of a desire to help those who were in the camp with him remain strong and heal from wounds and the like. Just last week, we partnered with our Missouri Department of Conservation and presented a a program on uh, food and uh, foraging. And we had a group that came in and brought some amazing persimmon cookies. So as uh, Libby was mentioning earlier in the podcast, there's nothing wrong with entering into a love for history uh, by starting with our taste buds. So Laura, 
as a national nexus for World War I, you have a lot of programs going, including educational programs. Tell us about that. Uh, we have a wonderful partnership in conjunction with the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. On our website, we have a host of other incredible partners uh, that are bringing together the very best World War I lesson plans and resources for educators. Uh, folks like the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, Library of Congress, the History Channel, National Archives, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So when there are educators who are listening to this podcast, we really encourage you to take a look at our webpage www.theworldwar.org slash education. Find out more about this incredible national partnership uh, that uh, brings together these different lesson plans. But also, we would really encourage folks to get online and sign up for an educational newsletter that we send out every other month called Understanding the Great War. We take a thematic lens in each newsletter to help our readers learn a bit more about the war, and we provide some primary source-driven, easily implementable lesson plans and resources that educators can put into their classroom that very week. To sign up for the newsletter, you can go to either theworldwar.org or uh, the World War I Centennial webpage. And we would love to send this out as a heads up for these intrepid listeners. I'd also like to let folks know that there will be a contest coming out at the end of August and early September that you could have the opportunity to send your favorite teacher to your National World War I Museum and Memorial. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Teo. That was Laura Volk, the Curator of Education for the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. Their website is full of great information and resources. Follow the link in the podcast notes. And if you do get to Kansas City, wipe that barbecue off your face and get over to the National World War I Museum and Memorial for an afternoon you won't forget. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Hi, Teo. We share a lot of images on our social media pages, notably on our Instagram at WW1CC. And I'm sure that my being a photographer has something to do with that. But it's important to note that many, if not most, of the photographs that we see from World War I are inherently propagandistic. They probably were taken by official war photographers or by journalists sanctioned by their home governments. Because of this, very few images of real action exist, and usually they're from a great distance, and all you can see are puffs of smoke and destroyed landscapes. And images were often composed of multiple negatives, were staged, or otherwise edited to appear more dramatic. But the official photographers weren't the only men on the field with cameras, thanks to an advancement made by one of the most iconic photography companies in history. This week, we shared an article on Facebook about a little-known World War I-era camera, something kept as secreted away as possible by the soldiers that owned one, the Kodak Vest Pocket Camera, known as the VPK. Kodak launched its new, smaller, lighter, portable cameras using celluloid film in 1912, just two years before the outbreak of the First World War, and a craze was born. Ordinary people no longer had to rely on professional studios or official photographers. They could photograph for themselves. 
Fearing potential intelligence and propaganda issues, the British War Office declared in late 1914 that the taking of photographs is not permitted. Any officers or soldier found in possession of a camera will be placed in arrest and the case reported to general headquarters. But photographing continued nonetheless, and thanks to the VPK, the everyman and every woman of the war could help in producing a parallel archive of images to the official narratives of the war photographers, a first instance of the democratization of conflict photography. Go to our Facebook page or to the podcast notes to read more about this incredible photographic history in the article, The Vest Pocket Kodak, The Soldier's Kodak. Thank you, Catherine. But just before we close... We want to thank and congratulate the Commission's Summer of 2017 interns. This year, 15 brilliant, dedicated college students joined us over the past weeks. Their commitment, quality, focus, and dedication has made a real impact on us here at the World War I Centennial Commission and on the Centennial Commemoration in general. We want to give a big shout-out to Elisa Carter from Lubbock Christian University, Matt Costas from Georgetown University, Samantha Marie Essenat from Florida International University, Aaron Gladstone from University of Maryland College Park, Shelby Lisco from University of Central Arkansas, Drew Lorelli from Old Dominion University, Daniel McManus from George Washington University, Natalie Nguyen from George Mason University, Josh Norton all the way from Ulster University in North Ireland, Lorenzo Rodriguez from Florida International University, Ben Sonnenberg from University of Minnesota Duluth, Michael Stoller from Temple University, Julia Suchinek from Lycoming College, Alice Valley from Quinnipiac University, and Elliot Warren from George Washington University. We thank you. And you need to know that you made a real difference in commemorating the war that changed the world. We hope that your time with us has enriched your lives and your careers, and from everyone at the Commission, a simple, heartfelt thank you. And that's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog and his post about gas warfare, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton and their storyteller and historian segment on building up and training U.S. forces, Dr. Libby O'Connell, World War I Centennial Commissioner, historian, and author, speaking to us about food history. David Craig, Executive Director of the Maryland World War I Centennial Commission. Laura Vo, Curator of Education at the National World War I Museum and Memorial, and her insight into the museum programs and commemorative initiatives. Catherine Akey, the Commission's Social Media Director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This program is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across our country. And, of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C., If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation of any size at www.cc.org slash donate, all lowercase. Or, if you're on your smartphone, text the word WW1 to 41444. Any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org slash cn. 
on iTunes and Google Play and all the places that you get your podcasts. Search for WW1 Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here with somebody about the war that changed the world. So long.